as we enact this beginning of Holy Week, we see Jesus moving towards this destiny that we're all very familiar with. But had you been living through this the first time, uh, this is actually one of the wildest, most politically explosive acts of Jesus' life. Um, We tend to think, if I were to say, uh, word association, you know, name an explosive act in Jesus' life, probably all of us would say, you know, turning over the table of the money changers in in the court of the Gentiles. But this actually is more in your face socially or politically even than that act when he rides on a colt uh, into Jerusalem in the way that he did. Jesus, of course, is normally quiet, right? When you think of Jesus, you think of him as basically quiet. He heals people and says, don't tell anybody. He drives out demons and says, you know, don't make a big deal out of this. He, he seems to like a kind of hiddenness. And so why this sudden, it almost feels like a turn in temperament. Why this sudden desire for acclaim? He could have walked in with the rest of the pilgrims. I mean, everybody was just going in for Passover. He could have walked in with everybody else, and no one would have noticed. But actually, in our gospel reading this morning, the one we read outside, in verses 1 through 7, you see that he actually carefully planned this. Almost like a PR campaign or something. He actually carefully planned how he might like appear on the red carpet, so to speak, uh, a Grammy night or something. So why this turn? And it has something to do with this, that assigning worth to God, thinking of Jesus as competent, as brilliant, as insightful, as someone who actually understands how humanity is supposed to work, that kind of praise, that kind of assigning of worth has as a natural consequence a political and social aspect. You don't have to make it happen. Now, I'm not picking on anybody just for the sake of illustration. You don't have to form the moral majority. But again, I'm not picking on anybody. But you don't have to do that. Simply in your own heart, assigning worth to God and his son Jesus, that has social overturns. We are social beings by nature. You can't hold something like that and it not reform your own social sphere. Well, Jesus' social sphere here is Jerusalem. And so he's engaging here in kind of a satire. It's sort of a spoof on the political leaders. You know, it's the kind of thing that we might think of today as sort of like a rock star coming into a festival environment. And of course, this is totally unlike him. And yet he rides into Jerusalem on the shouts of these adoring crowds and allows it to happen. Well, what's going on here is this is sort of like a subversive comedy regarding kingship. Jesus is exposing the powers. You know, Paul talks about principalities and powers. Jesus is here not mocking. This is is more like a jester showing a completely different understanding of leadership and inviting people to see the way the world works in a whole new way. We just read his silence before his accusers. But in this case, he allows this acclaim to basically say, the powers aren't the powers. And what you're about to see enacted in this next week is what's really going on. So the story ends kind of anticlimactically. 
right? Do you remember what we read outside of you? Have <laughs> you forgotten already? He goes in, he looks around, and he goes out to Bethany. So all this big acclaim, all this big sort of welcoming to the red carpet, and it's like he goes in and looks around the ballroom and, you know, goes home. <laughs> Only, and, and they're sort of saying in there, I think, that what's coming is what really will reorder all the powers. So Jesus has something going in him that we uh, read in our uh, passage from Isaiah this morning, that knowing God would acquit him and defend him, Jesus had already decided and committed on what he was gonna do. If you look at your uh, Isaiah passage, he says, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting but rather I set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame, for he who vindicates me is near. Clearly, Jesus had sort of going on in his head, faithful, pious Jews would have literally memorized the Psalms. I mean, they would have literally known all the Psalms. It was their hymnal. It was their hymn book. And so clearly, Jesus has going on in his head something like we read in the Psalm this morning, that my eyes have cried out, And I feel hollow on the inside. My life feels as if it's to leak away, groan by groan. My troubles have worn me out. My bones have turned to powder. To my enemies, I'm a monster. I'm ridiculed by my neighbors. My friends are horrified. They cross the street to avoid me. They want to blot me out from memory, forget me like a corpse in a grave, discard me like a broken dish in the trash. They tell everybody I'm criminally insane. But Jesus, knowing this psalm, has going on in his head, but I trust in you, Lord. I say you are my God and my times this week. My times are in your hands, not in Pilate's, not in the crowds, not in the Pharisees or even the Sanhedrin, not in Herod and his temple police. I mean, just think of that crowd. Picture yourself walking into Jerusalem with Jesus, if you can, alongside that colt, and picture it, you know, something like the uh, New Year's parade in Pasadena. Just think of all the people that have been in that crowd, all the people in whose hands Jesus' time might have been. The various kinds of people who all had their agendas concerning God and Jerusalem and and Jewishness. But Jesus knows that my times are not in their hands. My times are in God's hands. He'll deliver me from the hands of my enemies, from those who pursue me, and will save me in his unfailing love. So there's something about this week, this holy week, that the church has always thought is supposed to form our essential thinking, and our essential formation as human beings. And this is why we read Philippians 2 during this week. What Philippians 2, if you want to look at your passage, is essentially trying to say to us is that Jesus' spirituality, his type of spirituality, I mean, we all got our favorites, right? Maybe some of you love Henry Nouwen, and maybe some of you love... Eugene Peterson or Dallas Willard or whoever your, you know, your thing is. But Philippians is telling us that it's actually Jesus' spirituality that's the premier example for Christians. 
that Jesus didn't exploit his status, but rather emptied himself on behalf of others in humble obedience. And if you'll know how this, note how this passage starts, it says, in your relationships with one another. See, we're back here to the, to the essential social dimension of the gospel and the essential social dimension of our own formation. Because you don't learn to be patient picking up a book on patience. You learn to be patient by being engaged, present, and attentive to the people in your actual social sphere. That's where you learn patience or kindness or generosity or confront the kind of basic things in us where they're, they're mostly um, confronted in our social dimension. So when Philippians 2 asks us to have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, when it says he didn't claim special privileges, instead he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless and obedient death, that is meant to happen in our social sphere. It's not a mystical, personal experience in the sense of personal excluding you from everyone in your social sphere. No, the, the place that, you, that somebody would note selflessness, I mean, come on, this isn't rocket science. How can you sit in your bedroom by yourself and be selfless? To be selfless requires at least another human being. And so the selflessness that is lifted up here is meant to be lived out in the already existing rhythms and routines of our present life. It's there that we learn obedience and selflessness. Well, we've enacted this as we've, you know, come in this morning and kind of pivoted from Palm Sunday to now pointing ourselves to Holy Week, to Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and then, of course, next week, Easter. And you all know this story that within a week, the acclaim turns to mockery, Palm Sunday turns to Good Friday, and as I thought about this week, I realized that several times in my life, I've waved palm branches. Uh, and any of the guys in my, any of the guys, middle-aged guys in the room probably remember 70s muscle cars, you know? And we were also happy when Chrysler came out with those big Hemi engines, you know, in Barracudas or, or in Roadrunners. And, you know, both of my older brothers were gearheads. They used to race cars down at... Uh, Orange County International Speedway, long before there was ever a Lake Forest or an Aliso Viejo, that used to be where we raced cars. <laughs> there was nothing out there but the drag strip and cars that we could race. And, and I remember thinking, yeah, I love speed and I love cars. And so I remember this one day we're working on, our, on my friend's Barracuda, this big Hemi engine. We're trying to put this really big carburetor on it that would make it go even faster. So we bolted it all on and fired it up, only to see this huge fireball that singed the whole side of my neighbor's house, the stucco, and actually caught the overhanging eaves on fire a little bit. So I kind of thought, well, maybe being a gearhead's not for me. <laughs> and I waved a lot of palm branches at baseball only to find out that, uh, you know, I had a bad knee and my speed was going to keep me from making it in Major League Baseball. I was so slow. I used to sometimes hear things from the dugout like, Hunter, get that piano off your back. 
Or you know how, you know, whenever spring training comes around, they would time us in the 40-yard dash. And so one day, it's like, Hunter, you're up. And the coach got out a calendar. <laughs> he really did. I'm not kidding. Hunter, you're up. He puts away his stopwatch and gets out a calendar. I thought, well, you know, maybe the major leagues aren't for me. And I remember I was about 24 years old or something back when I was actually in shape. Debbie and I lived in a little city called Wheeling, West Virginia, and they used to have this big race every year, this kind of world-renowned, I can't remember, half marathon or 10K or something, and literally the best runners from all the world would come. And I remember going out one early Saturday morning and standing on the curb, and I saw come running by me this pack of like five or six Kenyans. And they were like superhuman. I thought, God, I can't run that fast for 100 yards. And they had been running for miles and just looked like they could run forever, just kept running by. And so a friend of ours owned a running store. And so I went and got running shorts and fitted for some shoes and, you know, got sort of all decked out with those cool, you know, 70s sweatsuits. <laughs> and only to discover that it kind of hurt my back. And, you know, there was that knee again. So I picked up racquetball. I started waving palms at racquetball because, see, racquetball just requires quickness. And I had a lot of quickness, but on a court, you don't have to run as far as tennis. So I picked up racquetball several times in my life. I was pretty good at it, only for the doctor to tell me, you keep playing, you're going to need a new knee. And I remember one time, one of my mentors saying to me, Todd, you really need to start reading some fiction. Because I don't know why, I just don't read fiction. I'm always, I always have stuff to read that I don't have time to read fiction. And this mentor of mine loved crime and punishment. Well, I asked him where to start. He said, start with crime and punishment. <laughs> I picked it up and I tried. And I put it down. I never really did become a reader of fiction. Our country is full of people who are fans of Jesus. They're spiritual, kind of like Jesus, but not religious. But they have no intention of actually following him. They love Jesus the way I loved running. I used to love jazz, and uh, I used to play piano. Oscar Peterson, remember Oscar Peterson? Those big, beautiful black hands. They were like magic. And I would get his pieces of music and I would try to play them and I would watch videos of him. And just this week for the fun of it, I went on YouTube and found all these amazing, you know, uh, uh, videos of Oscar playing. I discovered, I can't do that. And that's happening all over America. It's happening all over Orange County. There are hundreds of thousands of people all around us who became fans of Jesus in the Jesus movement, who waved a palm, but presently have no intention of actually treating Jesus as, they see, as if he's competent and worthy to be followed. And so as we kind of wind down from Lent here, seeing this pattern, this Palm Sunday to Good Friday pattern that plays out in 100 million hearts, 
It kind of gets us to think about the difference between falling in love and loving. Did you know even that falling in love is a completely Western term? They don't even use this term except for basically, well, maybe now with the spread of the internet, but basically falling in love has been a European and North American idea. The sort of good feelings we have, you know, to describe this love that's strong, but not necessarily permanent, you know, you know, this is why people get sort of addicted to these feelings of falling in love. You may know that there's been a whole spat of books about this. Remember the famous book, Women Who Love Too Much? There's a whole system in family therapy of helping people deal with this love addiction. But falling in love is different than loving. Loving means to desire the good of the person loved. Loving is long-term. Love doesn't have strong emotions attached to it only, but it's also a virtue. Clearly, love has very strong attachments to it. Like, did you know that there's a law in the books of California that says I have to feed my children? And that if I don't, I could go to jail? But I don't need that law to tell me to feed my children because I have these strong feelings towards them. But these strong feelings are meant to be acted out as a kind of a virtue, representing human kindness and compassion and affection. This kind of love is unselfish and loyal. This is what's meant when Jesus said, love your neighbor as you love yourself. So Christian spirituality helps us move from a kind of infatuation or superficial falling in love with Jesus. And you just think of all of our popular songs of the last 20 or 25 years. How many of them that sort of shepherd us in this notion of falling in love with Jesus, but left us a bit short when it came to actually obeying him thinking of him as a competent person worth following. So as we come now to the end of Lent, this Palm Sunday invites us to explore the aspects of our discipleship that need subverted. Like, put yourself now in that crowd and your own thinking of Jesus. And maybe as he comes in riding on this cult, the great subversive, turning everything upside down so that people can see it different Maybe there's things in our life that need to be laid down. So as we finish here, I want you to actually do something with me. I want you to just kind of close your eyes. Well, not kind of, close your eyes. And I want you to picture your street, the actual street that you live on, or if it's better for you, the street that you grew up on. But you actually picture your street. And now at the end of the street, you see this big throng of people come walking down, almost like Mardi Gras or something. And you note that one person is taller than the rest because he's sitting on a colt. And as you consider now the last six weeks of Lent, what might Jesus be asking you to lay down that would simultaneously acknowledge his kingship in your life and would also praise him? What would you lay down?